Hi and welcome to Stefan Levero Podcast, a show about Bitcoin and Austrian economics. Today, for episode 242, we are exploring the idea of maintaining Bitcoin Core. So Bitcoin Core is open source. There is no CEO, there is no top-down leader, there's no guy up the front with a bullhorn, as Tom Woods would say. So I invited Jonas Schnelli on to tell us a little bit about how it works, how does contribution work, how to deal with conflict as a maintainer, what does rough consensus mean? And we explore various different points around the Bitcoin ecosystem, such as Taproot, Privacy, Lightning, Mining, and others. This show is brought to you by Swan Bitcoin. Bitcoin has emerged as a major player on the global stage. It has been significantly de-risked over the past year with major investors, institutions, and companies making big investments. A common way people get started is establishing their initial position with a one-time buy and then start dollar-cost averaging with automatic recurring buys. Swan Bitcoin was built to do just this. With Swan, you can create a recurring purchase plan like $100 a week or $20 a day and you can make one-time buys as well. Swan supports bank wires for larger amounts and ACH transfers for smaller one-time buys is rolling out. So Swan is available in all states and territories of the US, including New York. Swan is the best place to send your friends and family when they're ready to start buying Bitcoin. Send them to swanbitcoin.com slash Levera and Swan will drop $10 of free Bitcoin into their account when they become a member. Unchained Capital is building Bitcoin native financial services and they are helping teach people how to use multi-signature. So if you are new to the world of Bitcoin and you need to secure a serious amount of Bitcoin and you're an individual or you're a business and you need a concierge onboarding service, Unchained Capital can help you out. So the success of the individual onboarding package has now led to the creation of the business concierge package. So that ranges from $3,000 for a small business, $5,000 for mid-sized businesses, and custom pricing for large ones. This includes concierge calls to walk you through configuring the hardware wallet devices. They send you the devices, and they educate you on the steps in that process. It comes with hands-on support for building the vaults and also operational security guidance. This is a great option for those of you looking to buy Bitcoin through their OTC desk and change your either your individual treasury or your corporate treasury to a Bitcoin standard where you hold the private keys. So go and use the code Lavera when you're ordering to get a discount and go to unchained-capital.com for more. Now, if you're thinking of how to secure your coins, think about a metal seed backup. CypherSafe.io are producing metal backup seed products like the Cypher Wheel, and they've got a new product. It's called the Bitcoin Recovery Tag. And this can help you with recovery, you or your heirs, in fact. So it can, it's an extra stainless steel tag. It includes info like the original wallet, some of those technical details like the gap limit, derivation types, the scripts used. And each major hardware wallet type has their own specific type of recovery tag specifying the data for that type and it also includes a link for recovery so that way if your heirs are recovering the coins they have a link and some guidance on how to do that so it really adds that value of helping you or your heirs recover in practice now the bitcoin recovery tag works with any seed word backup device obviously the cypher wheel is the product by CypherSafe, but it also works with other seed backup products. So go to cyphersafe.io and use the code Lavera for a discount. Jonas, welcome back to the show. Hey, hi, Stefan. Thanks for having me. 
Jonas, it's been a while since we spoke on the show and I was uh, excited to get another opportunity to chat with you and learn a little bit more and obviously uh, talk about this on behalf of some of the newer listeners who are coming in and they may not be so familiar with how does Bitcoin Core work. So just for listeners who are a bit newer, can you just give a bit of background? Who are you? What do you do in this space? Yeah, sure. My name is Jonas Schnelli. I, uh, I live in Switzerland. I started getting interested in Bitcoin in 2011 and followed the open source project called Bitcoin uh, back then. Started to contribute in 2013 and went full-time kind of as, as my job to work on Bitcoin Core in 2015 and made over 30,000 lines of code in Bitcoin Core. And before that, I worked as a software engineer for roughly 20 years. Excellent. And so can you spell out a little bit about the role of you know a maintainer in an open source project like Bitcoin? Yeah, so maintaining or maintainers usually do the, uh, I sometimes call it like the janitor job, cleaning up, <laughs> reviewing, making releases, things that needs more attention than just writing features. I think it, it, it's very important to have stable maintainers, people that now come and go. That's what, what is one of the skill sets you probably need. Some basic trust from the ecosystem that you're not maintaining it in the wrong direction. And what it means job-wise, it, it means a lot of communication. So when I get up, go to my computer, there's roughly 150 GitHub comments in 24 hours. I need to skip through those, take the ones out that are in my area or that interests me, make sure you give feedback to especially new contributors or give feedback on things that laying around for a long time so the project can move on. And of course, there's a lot of work around features and pull requests, which means releases, testing, infrastructure, stuff like that. And luckily, we're a handful of people who do the maintaining and ideally there will be more but it's kind of hard to get people to commit to that job so that's why it's currently six people yeah it sounds uh, very much like tough work and sometimes a bit of hidden or a thankless task in many ways i think for listeners who might be a little bit newer they might just be trying to learn about bitcoin what does it mean that bitcoin's code is open source and that there's no top-down leader there's no ceo of the bitcoin code right yeah, I think that's one of the big reasons why Bitcoin has developed so stable over the last years and so natural because there's no leadership. Satoshi disappeared roughly in 2013 compared to other cryptocurrencies like Ethereum, Monero and Jesus, Litecoin and stuff. They have still all a leadership structure. The founder or in Ethereum as a good example, Vitalik is still there and this influences the direction in a non-scientific way and I think that's a great thing we have at Bitcoin Core, there's no leadership. And open source, in my opinion, means everyone can change the code towards the direction uh, he or she wants. And of course, there is currently a project called Bitcoin Core, which is the dominant implementation. But it's always possible for, not in terms of a hard work of the consensus, but to fork the code and change it in a different direction. At the end, it's the users, they decide what software they want to run. But I think Core has made a good job over the last years, people putting a lot of trust into Bitcoin Core and think it's a stable environment for development. So from the user's perspective, I guess, could you just outline a little bit how developers of Bitcoin Core have to respect the wishes of the users, right? It's not that you guys are the kind of top-down leaders and you guys set how things go and everyone must use your code. Why is that? 
Yeah, that these ideas or debates come up here and there. It, I lost remember during the hard fork debate, I think it was 17 or even before, when some people said, well, the core people are not doing this, the core people are not doing that. They sit in an ivory tower and decide what they want. Well, first, it's an open source project, similar to Linux. If you put resources in, you have something to say. You can steer it in that direction. And it's completely open. So everyone can open a pull request. Is it Roger? Career, is it Jihan Wu, whoever, they can open a pull request and no one will close the pull request because of emotions. That's really important. It's scientific. So if a big enemy of Bitcoin, whoever that is, starts to open a pull request, it will take him seriously if it's technically feasible what he or she wrote. And that's really important to understand. So whenever you put resources into Bitcoin Core, you can steer, similar to Linux. That's also why IBM, Red Hat, uh, all these bigger companies into computers, they have their dedicated contributors to the Linux kernel because they have, they want to have a stake in it and they need it for their enterprise solutions. So they have ideas in what directions they want to go. Although this doesn't mean if a raw contributor comes and tries to change, let's say, block size to one gigabyte, there will still be a scientific discussion and people will probably neglect to it and it will very likely not be merged. So it's still consensus. You can steer it in a way, but there's no ultimate uh, power you can enforce if you're just a single contributor. Right. And I presume as well that as developers, there's some level of what we might call stewardship. And you're trying to, in some way, respect the intention of the users and the kind of goals of the project, wouldn't you say? Absolutely. So it doesn't mean that every developer has its own agenda and goes into like, it, it pulls in each direction. So there's still, there's an issue tracker, novice users who doesn't have the development skills, they file issues, they ask for features. Of course, the community as a whole gets respected in the whole development process. Reasonable things get addressed. There's a lot of development or developers, they don't have a clear perspective where they want to end up. They just want to fulfill the needs of the ecosystem. I, I call myself in that realm. And I think there's very much listening to the users and implementing what they want or what we think they want. Of course, if there's special needs for enterprise solutions, that's up to the enterprises to put these resources into Bitcoin Core. Usually if someone comes up, asks in an issue, well, Bitcoin Core doesn't work with 1000 wallets, please make that happen. <laughs> then usually we say, well, yeah, if you need enterprise solutions in Bitcoin Core, it's up to you to find these resources, eventually pay for these developers to implement it and maintain it. Right. And so maybe it's a good point here just to spell out who are some of the main, let's call it stakeholders then in Bitcoin Core, because if we're trying to understand who controls it, well, what are the different directions it could get pulled in? So I guess let me just spell out a few. You might be thinking, okay, well, the miners are a stakeholder in Bitcoin. People who create software or hardware that interacts with Bitcoin Core, they might be a stakeholder. The end user might be a stakeholder. Bitcoin companies like exchanges and financial services and other Bitcoin companies. Companies, they have some interest or stake in what's going on with Bitcoin Core. Are there any others or do you want to spell out some of the stakeholders in this? Yeah, I think nailed it pretty much how it is. And I think what still surprises me, and we have like, uh, we had 10 years on the road with Bitcoin, there's still only very few companies from those one we see daily doing Bitcoin business that actually contribute to Bitcoin Core. That still surprises me today. So when we look at what companies are putting resources down, I think the one that leads out is probably Chaincode Labs from New York. Alex and uh, Suhas's company, they employ quite a few Bitcoin Core developers and also Lightning. So I think at least 10 or 
around 10 and they have no business so that's that needs to be said they have no traditional business where they want to get something back in terms of financial reward so this is more of a kind of foundation-ish approach and on the other hand there is Blockstream that was prominent over the few over the last few years nowadays I think if I'm right they only have one or at least two developers working on Bitcoin Core some on Lightning they went a lot they reduced their resources a lot over the last years and of course the new players like OKCoin sponsoring a few developers Bitmain was sponsoring but they stopped last year and miners have a stake for sure we know that they want their block reward but on the development side they haven't put much resources in but I think they will will come now and take over a lot because they really depend on a great infrastructure Right. And I guess when it comes to making contributions, there is a process around this. And so listeners, if you're unfamiliar, some earlier good episodes are the one with John Attack 124, I think, and Steve Lee, Gloria Zell, and John Newbury. Some of those are earlier episodes. You can see those in the catalog. I'll put links for those. Jonas, if you could just tell us a little bit about the contribution process and then what it takes to you know, have that contribution reviewed and then merged, what does that look like? I think if you're a developer coming from traditional software development process, more in the private sector, like if you worked at Google or whatever, and you come and start to contribute to an open source project like Bitcoin Core, first you need to adapt your mental set to it. Because usually when you work in a business software project, things go very fast. You write a line of code or you write the change. Maybe someone looks at it, maybe not, and it will be merged in a few days or you merge it yourself in a few days into the stable master branch. In Bitcoin Core, things are really different and for good. So if you start to contribute to Bitcoin Core, maybe you pick up an issue that someone is requesting a feature or a bug and you start to work on it, it will take at least normal change set. It will take at least two to six months until it gets merged because there's so many reviewing going on. There's so much testing going on because stability is the main focus of Bitcoin Core. And this can be hard for new contributors because they wait for things to move on and it takes like weeks until nothing goes and the reviewing is still a bottleneck of Bitcoin Core so it takes a lot of time if you want to work 100% on Bitcoin Core with all your time you need to do a lot of changes and also a lot of reviewing to kind of fill up your schedule because it's like a lot of waiting in your for your own changes but once you have written a such change you open a pull request and then it's public a lot of people will comment and ask for changes and then you need to be uh, mature enough to accept critics, criticism and approaches others have, or even if it's a bad idea, you need to accept that things are not getting merged. Yeah. And so then there's also this element where in open source projects, there's often that dynamic where there are more people who want to write a new contribution, aka a pull request, than compared to the amount of resources that we have in terms of reviewer time, and then potentially even more scarce is maintainer time. Could you just spell out that dynamic for us? Yes, I think it's a phenomenon we see in most open source projects that people are really great in writing features, new things, things that's uh, that are great to write because it, there's a concrete outcome. What, what we actually need is people refactoring the software, making it easier to change in, in the future, making it more performant. Things that are not so fancy to implement, you won't get a big reward for changing the software that's not visible, but it helps for 
scaling it the next 10 years. These things are actually the hard part. And gladly in Bitcoin Core, we have a lot of developers willing to do that, probably because of the funding. And But yeah, I mean, reviewing is still what's missing because, you know, there's a lot of changes and, and a lot of refactorings written, but no one has a skill set or no one takes the time to actually go step by step through every line of code and verifies it. Of course, it's done over time, but it, it's still the bottleneck. And for listeners who might be newer to this, what does the term refactoring mean? Yes, that's an essential thing that gets pushed away in the private sector, traditional business software development. So when you want to have a software project, a project succeed over time, you need always to kind of reshuffle the code, optimize the code in a way which is not visible. There's no outcome in terms of feature, but internally it gets much easier to change things in future. Like writing, instead of one single file of code, you split it into multiple files makes it easier to read makes it easier to change less impact if you change one thing at the other end things like that it's super important for a cryptocurrency or it's super important for bitcoin and this is also why people sometimes think well there's a lot of development going on in bitcoin core like hundreds of comets but at the end it still looks the same so why is that that's actually because we're doing refactoring and in the process of refactoring, that is potentially an avenue for bugs to happen. And I guess depending on whether it's like, in most cases, obviously, it will be unintentional bugs, but potentially that's a risk where if someone was malicious and maybe they were a bit more calculated about that, that might be an opportunity for somebody to try to slip a bug into that code. And at that point, we are essentially relying on the skill of reviewers who know the code base and also to some extent, the maintainers. Can you outline some of your thoughts on that idea? Yeah, I think refactorings always have the risks of breaking things, introducing former bugs or new bugs. Um, how we counterfeit that is usually we have like a test a suite that tests everything or as much as possible. Of course, we cannot test everything, but it's there's a lot of tests testing the software automatically. So whenever you change something, you run these tests. And if something is broken, you know, I changed it in a way which changed the behavior. Of course, not everything is tested while there's still a remaining risk and we had issues in the past there was a big bug the inflation bug that was also due to refactoring so it is risky but not refactoring is even more risky because we will end up the software that's not, no longer maintainable and then the ugly box will, will happen now, some listeners might be thinking, but Jonas, I just want 21 million and I don't want any changes. Can't we just have stasis of the code or is it actually that stasis is not an option? Yeah, I mean, Bitcoin was built to resist changes. That's for sure. No one wants to change the 21 million cap or similar things because we want the value of the coin and not feature fancy stuff, right? So I think to keep it stable, we need to at least make sure inter or found issues get fixed because otherwise people figure out how to break Bitcoin core, how to uh, stop it, the peer-to-peer -peer network from working. So at least that needs to happen. And then scaling, the chain grows over time. We also want to make it possible for everyone to verify the chain so they can still run a full node compared to other cryptocurrencies where this is no longer possible. And also, I think everyone is okay with improving things in a way which is clearly beneficial for everyone. I'd say privacy is probably in that area. Well, some will probably say privacy is, is evil, but I think most Bitcoin stakeholders are very much interested in increasing privacy. So that's why still 
stuff goes forward. Right. And perhaps another example of that is over time, things change external to Bitcoin. So an example would be the Tor uh, V2 addresses is being deprecated. And so I know that was also a project recently in Bitcoin Core to have compatibility with Tor V3 addresses. So perhaps that's also an example where stasis is actually not an option. Yeah, very good example. And I think there's a lot around that. And, you know, HTTP is some part of it. Uh, we have some APIs that needs to have at least some minimal maintaining. Absolutely. Gotcha. And so when we're talking about who controls Bitcoin Core, who has influence, it some people make a change or some people put in a pull request, their pull request gets attention and work and other pull requests don't get attention and work. How does that decision, how does that process happen? Why is it that some get work and others don't? Yeah, of course, there is an emotional element that's not possible to hide out. Contributors that have contributed over, over years with stable things. A good example is Peter Rullier. If he writes a pull request, it just gets attention because he's the father of segregated witness. He's the father of Taproot. So I think if you have a good record of valuable changes, your stuff gets more attention. That's just a, that's just a fact. And there's also things that no one is interested in reviewing or bringing forward. If someone comes with good example, it probably comes all over time always in its full address index. Uh, like Electrum servers usually do, technical thing. But if there's changes that have not much interest, it just starts to lay around there and reviewing will not happen. But that doesn't mean that the one that uh, wrote the change and is interested to get it merged cannot, cannot find people willing to review it, either on a financial basis or just find people who are who have the skill sets to review it and comment on it. But usually having some already existing contributor work or help uh, bringing forward your change is super beneficial. What about if there are trade-offs involved with a pull request and if there's some kind of conflict that comes up? How is that trade-off managed and how do you think about that when you're a maintainer? Yeah, it, that happens a lot. So if even if contributors that have been working on core for years have sometimes different views on, on the change. If it's consensus critical, there's nothing that usually we want that everyone is, is on board with the consensus change. If there's loud voices against the consensus change, even if it's not the majority, it, it will lead to problems. So on consensus changes, we should really try to have everyone on board or at least most people. Uh, there is no voting process or anything like that. It's like it's we try to form consensus on changes. If there are smaller things that doesn't affect consensus and it's not going too much into the peer-to-peer -peer network, it might get merged regardless of one or two voices complaining about the negative sides. That depends often on the maintainer and also on the weight of the complaint, um, especially like user interface changes. It's so much a matter of taste. So if, if you would listen to every voice, you, would not, you wouldn't get anywhere. I see. And just as part of the development process, there's this thing called the ACK process. So could you tell us a little bit about what that is? Yes. So whenever there's a pull request and someone starts to review it, uh, we need an outcome of that review. We have these terms ACK, A-C-K, that means acknowledged or accept, something like that. So there's a tested acknowledge, a tested ACK, that means you have actually tested the software and you accept it. Or there is the UT ACK, which means untested acknowledged, that means I have not tested it, but I have reviewed the code and I accept it. Sometimes people write 
write code review egg. That means I have done the code review and accept it. Ideally, especially for new contributors who start reviewing code, write a bit more than just an egg. Start to write what have you tested? What was your feeling about it? What's the consequences of that change? So people have more trust in that you have actually reviewed it thoroughly. Yeah. So bringing it back to what we were saying earlier, essentially what you're saying there is that in certain cases, somebody could knack something, but if it's relatively minor, then it could still get merged in by a maintainer, correct? Absolutely. Yeah, that happens a few times. And I think it, it's also fine that if, as, I mean, take, for example, a visual change that is a matter of taste and someone say, says, even a long-term contributor says, nag, this looks ugly and maybe nine other people accept it. So then it will lead to a merge where someone said nag. And it also happened on consensus changes during the debate of the block size where things got changed uh, regardless of uh, nags coming from from other sides. It happens, yes. Yeah. Another saying that comes from the, I guess, computer science and development communities is this idea of believing in code and rough consensus. What does that mean? Yeah, good question. <laughs> I think, you know, rough consensus probably means if I think the voting process is not something can have in Bitcoin Core. When I started to contribute, I thought, well, there, there needs to be kind of a guideline, a rule uh, when I can start to merge things or when does, does it mean 5x or 10x or is there a kind of a, you know, ratio I need to. But at the end, it's, you know, a fingertip feeling, I would say in, in Swiss German, you know, you need to have like, it's always different. Every pool is different. Every process of merging is different. You need to have these uh, senses, uh, what, what is good or what is not good. Yeah. And one sense I get just from following some of the discussion over the years, I'm not a developer myself, but it seems that there's a bit of a sense that if we're going to make a change, we kind of want it to be Pareto beneficial, right? It's kind of like people only win out of this and there's no one who's like a losing out of this change. Would you say that is sort of roughly aligned or how would you respond to that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there are some things where we cannot make everyone happy. A good example, well, it's very technical, but it's, it's the new addresses for the Tor format you have uh, mentioned before of the version 2 Tor onion addresses. There's always downsides like other implementations like BTCD in, in that particular issue had problems with reading those new addresses. So we, we needed to decide whether we complicated more or a bug that was implemented in another software. Um, cannot satisfy everyone, but at the end, what Bitcoin Core tries to do is make the ecosystem as a whole, try to try to work towards the ecosystem as a whole as good as possible. Yeah. And while we're on that topic as well, what about this idea of backwards compatibility or forward compatibility, this idea, the notion that somebody should be able to run Bitcoin Core nodes from one, two, three, four years ago or even more and still participate in the Bitcoin network? What's your thought on that idea? Yeah, that's something we take very seriously. So we put a lot of resources in backward compatibility. And I mean, where we can't is when a soft fork kind of gets activated and, and how we call it, uh, written down to, to the code. So it's no longer possible to use the older software for, for consensus reasons. That's probably the only place where backward compatibility won't work. I think older nodes are still on the network. We're far away from having the newest version 
version, the new stable version, dominantly on the network. So it's like there's like a lot of old software, old, old nodes in on mainnet, and I think that's absolutely fine. We think upgrading the upgrading process is something that needs attention and needs to be taken very seriously. That's also why there is no automatic updates and things like that, because there's always risks involved, and people should really be con- conscious about taking those risks and upgrading. Yeah. And when we're talking about influence in this world of Bitcoin Core, as you mentioned, if you are a longtime respected contributor, your work tends to carry a little bit more heft or weight to it. So I guess for a developer, that's how you, in some sense, gain influence. If you are a company or a development organization, what's the way that you you kind of exert that influence? Is it mainly by having your paid contributors work into a specific area of the code base? What does that look like? Yeah, I think first there's two areas. One is the protocol development specification. It's more in that area where the BIPs are, the Bitcoin improvement process, these papers. Uh, And the other side is working actually on the core code. I think companies are usually very good in writing specifications. That means writing no code. It's pure specifications, sometime a little bit of code or reverence implementation. But in that area, you can achieve a lot. And if it's a good idea, if it makes sense, it gets the implementation gets picked up by other people or you find people doing the implementation. But if a company wants to work on the core code, on the Bitcoin core code, it's best done by either having employees in-house that start to contribute or by funding open source development, either through a a vessel, a larger uh, funding organization, or you hire or sponsor your own developers. Question then is how can you influence these? And I think that's that's a good question in in general. And if you have them in-house, the problem is the culture is so different. The culture, how you develop in-house business stuff uh, versus working on Bitcoin Core is, is so different. And I would even say, a guy that writes or someone writes code in-house for a company stuff is not ideally, or you cannot share it between like 50-50. That's wish, wishful thinking often. It needs so different attention spans and things like that. Yeah, I see. On the question of funding as well, do you see that like that could be a negative or a positive? Like if somebody, I guess, and theoretically, we wouldn't, we could also not know about it, right? Somebody could be totally, you know, a pseudonymous a contributor and they may be being funded by you know our worst enemy but we wouldn't necessarily know and they could just be making so long as the contributions are still good Absolutely, and being reviewed yeah. right yeah uh, but, i think a good yeah. example was yeah. when i i worked with bitmain or they started to sponsor my work in 2016 a bit before they went into the rough side of bitcoin cash and stuff so over time i started to ask the question is that a kind of a good relation or not on the other hand they have not influenced myself or any of my work and i think it's fine you know as as long as somebody sees it valuable and pays for it and doesn't influence it but of course no one knows there could be developers being influenced by sites we don't want in bitcoin on the other hand it's kind of impossible to wash these outs because it's open source right everyone can try to influence it in their direction 
Yeah. And on the question of funding as well, in many cases, I have seen it done as just kind of a no strings attached, a Bitcoin company or exchange or development organization just says, hey, here's the money. We want you to just work on Bitcoin Core. In other cases, it's specific and tied to a certain project or a deliverable or something that they want the developer or contributor to achieve. What's your thought on those kinds of scenarios? Is one better than the other or is it more just like it, you, you've got to choose the right tool for the job there? Yeah, I think it, it's both is okay because let's go down the route of you have unlimited funding for whatever you want to do. I mean, for a maintainer is a good example. You, you don't have an outline project except maintaining, right? So it's it's probably an ideal situation where you just have the funds to do whatever you, you think is necessary. Uh, on the other hand, other people perform better if they have a clear outline, a specific amount of time and money for achieving a goal. On the other hand, it's very hard to estimate that in Vic core because you don't you cannot control the reviewing you cannot control possible changes you need to go through because of other main uh, contributors have better ideas so it's very hard to frame it i think what's hard is for company usually has a business interest they must be financially interesting so why would they sponsor someone working on something they cannot influence that's a really difficult question and i i think a lot of companies struggle with that because they cannot throw out money out of the window they're not a charity they need to get something in return some try to get in return public relations so they be part of the ecosystem customer are attracted to that um, some probably write it off as infrastructure needs well you need to have the basic infrastructure to make money on top of it but i think that's probably one of the reasons why we haven't seen or why there's still kind of a hold back of major companies to contribute because it's so hard to do it in a way which reflects the company's desires of making money yeah, and uh, maybe uh, they can uh, fund some developers if they want to keep some uh, hardcore maxis off their back, you know? <laughs> yeah, for sure. I mean, if you fund in the right direction, people maybe start to be more nice to you because you have a stake in that. But I think in the long run, most people have understand that the core infrastructures, it's necessary to make money on top of it with whatever company. So they see it as, as the base layer they need to fund. Back to the show after a message for the sponsors. Knox is a Bitcoin custodian dedicated to ensuring comprehensive insurance coverage for client assets. Much of what passes as insurance today isn't purchased for the sake of protection, but for pure marketing reasons. Knox believes insurance should exist to make fund recovery possible. No sharing coverage between customers. Knox takes a unique approach when it comes to purchasing insurance for customer assets. Coverage is set aside exclusively for every customer in a one-to-one -one capacity, all with a comprehensive policy covering a range of loss and theft events, including internal collusion. If you are a Bitcoin company, RIA, fund, trust, or family office, make sure to contact Knox to discuss Bitcoin custody and insurance. And finally, Lend at HodlHodl is a global Bitcoin-backed lending platform, so you can lend and borrow anonymously on your own terms. It's a peer-to-peer -peer solution, and they're using unique multi-signature escrow for each deal. So if you have stablecoins, you can create an offer and earn interest by lending on Lend at HodlHodl. Or on the other side, if you have Bitcoin and you need some liquidity and you don't want to sell, well, you can borrow against that collateral. So you can borrow some stable coins like USDT, for example, and you can keep on hodling. So with the Lend platform, you set your own terms and you put up offers depending on how long you want to borrow or lend and the interest rates. Go and learn more at lend.hodlhodl.com. Back to the interview. 
Others, such as Steve Lee of Square Crypto, have commented previously around this idea that maybe an, an ideal scenario would be something like a 10 by 10 matrix with many different development organizations all contributing to Bitcoin in their own way, perhaps with their own different viewpoint and such that in that way that they may challenge each other and so on. What's your view on that idea? Are you for that, against that, or kind of neutral on it? Yeah, I think I'd also like to see that. There's just one thing that always stands out for me, that the software is still a monolithic uh, piece of code where we have consensus code in the same repository as the UI of the Windows application, as an example. We need to distinct where I'd like to see more people working on it or more influence uh, happening. I think the consensus module should probably be a separate thing where, where we can have as much as possible influences but then you know you you can say there's a lot of code that's not necessary for bitcoin to survive like the ui that's a very matter of taste there we could not see just different influences on core we could see other implementations because when, when satoshi wrote the application the initial application i think from the beginning he always mentioned it's the reference implementation <laughs> And I still like the idea, although when it comes to consensus, I'm more, uh, I think we should have one single piece where everyone works on it, similar to the kernel or something like that in, in the Linux world. Right. And um, if I recall correctly, there were some instances where it was actually some things kind of bugs from other systems. And I think this was Peter Willer on uh, Chaincode podcast, and he was explaining how with the Berkeley DB kind of debacle back in 2013, that it was like a bug from some other area was effectively becoming like a Bitcoin consensus rule, because without that, you were falling out of consensus. So I guess that's one of the difficulties, right? Yes. Yeah, consensus. It's it's currently, uh, I'd say, very hard to impossible to specify just in words. There's a lot of code and things involved uh, in, in the consensus layer, even software, external software like LevelDB or formal Berkeley DB. And that's why I think having multiple consensus implementations might be a higher risk than having one where we work together on, on a single piece of software. So when we're talking about influence and ability to work on different areas of the code, is it also true to say that there are different areas of the code within Bitcoin Core on which people are considered an authority or an expert in that area? Could you spell out what some of those different areas are and how that aspect of this works? Yes, that's true. So the areas are A, consensus, I'd say, B, peer-to-peer, -peer, C, wallet, then user interface, APIs. RPC is a good API, CRMQ is another API. And in all these areas, there are unspoken, not not, not written down experts, like, you know, um, John Newbery is, is, is nowadays more and more in peer network. Peter Vuli is, is certainly one that has good insights into uh, into the consensus part. And Andrew Chow. Blockstream. Uh, Blockstream. Code, Blockstream, yeah. Uh, he's, he's very much into the wallet. He has the oversight there. But it's a fluid um, situation. People come and go, but there's always someone you like to have for a review in that certain area if you want to move forward and because they are quite the experts there. I say it's kind of like an unwritten rule thing that if I, if you were to make a you know a hardware wallet kind of in, a pull request or something like that, that it, it would be nice if Andrew Chow reviews that as an example. 
Absolutely. It's not necessary for a merge, but at some times the maintainers waits and maybe even asks uh, Andrew if he's willing to review that pull request because it looks like he has a good understanding there. That's how it happens. Yeah. So in terms of Bitcoin Core as a code base, I guess for you as a maintainer, you're sort of more in the center and you can't necessarily go as deep uh, into each of those different areas as compared to the subject expert, right? So how does that sort of work when you have to be, you're kind of relying on some level of the review by the, you know, uh, the unwritten uh, experts in that area, right? Yes, I think it's also good to know that the most maintainers have a specific uh, target area, um, although it's kind of it's overlapping and sometimes moving. I initially started to uh, be ready to maintain the user interface, though over the years I moved more towards uh, API changes and wallet. Um, so it's like every maintainer has its own area of interest, and that's also where he picks out things he'd like to get merged and move forward. Although things that lay around for a long time gets picked up, you know, by maintainers, uh, usually working in other areas. And there's also like we have a project, uh, it's called... Um, high priority pull requests where every contributor can can put one issue or one change in that list so these should be reviewed first and um, that's kind of you know a rule we try to uh, to maintain and, and that that also helps to review things that are maybe not in your, your skill set but you still have the skills to do it i see and how do you i guess apportion your time between the different pull requests because so, i guess there'd be a lot of people demanding your time and saying hey hey uh, this thing is reviewed can you please merge it and you you have to decide and you have to try to uh, apportion your time how do you make that decision yeah it's uh, that's really hard sometimes because you know you want to uh, you want to help everyone at the end uh, but time is limited you have your own or in my my uh, way in my uh, from my side i have my own changes i want to get forward as a contributor um sometimes even the review trading happens <laughs> that's funny but sometimes we trade reviews you look at my things i look at your things and together we bring it forward um it's it's also it's it's natural it's it's yeah it it's it's i think it's a good process right now so in terms of, I'm thinking here of Jameson Lopp's famous article, Who Controls Bitcoin Core? And in that article, he spells out some of the different you know, controls that are in place to make sure that the Bitcoin Core code is reviewed and also that there are ways that the end user, if they choose to, can verify that the software is you know, correctly done. So could you spell out a little bit about your processes that are involved as part of that? As I understand, there's things like, you know, Gideon and, um, you know, you're doing, uh, you're doing like a compile and you're, you're essentially sh saying, yeah, I've signed off on this. Could you spell out some of those processes for the listeners? Yes. So I think as an initial or as the most important part in that circle, we use Git as a source code uh, maintaining system. That's just for keeping the source code, having a, a way to verify that the source code is correct. On top, we sign every merge. So every merge that goes into um, into that Git rep repository is merged together with an, uh, an additional hash. So because uh, Git is using SHA-1, which is more or less broken. That's just for for the code. And each 
each merge gets also signed with the PGP key of, of the maintainer that merges it. So you have at the end a possibility to verify the whole source code if there is no merge inside that's not done by a maintainer. It's, it's not going back to, to the initial comment we had from, from Sirius or from Satoshi. So it, it's, it's, uh, it goes back, I think, to 2013 or 14. But at least you have a certain integrity check with uh, GPG that no one has changed the code in a way which was not intended. And from, from that code base... Um, how do we form binaries? Because, you know, most people are not capable to take the source code and make it into a running application. That's that's still a complex thing for, for most people. And we still want to ship binaries, double-clickable applications. And this is the hard part. How can we form these double-clickable applications out of a source code in a non-centralized way? That's actually a very hard problem, and it's still not solved in most uh App Store cases. So that's why um, people came up with that Gitian thing. That's actually can look at it as a black box where many people can use this black box to turn that source code that's verifiable into an application. You can double click and that's also verifiable. So at the end, people who are downloading Bitcoin Core, they have an option to to verify that application and look what what how many developers have said that this application is good to run and this is a it's an important process if you want to have a critical software pre-compiled and just for listeners who maybe they're a little bit new, they don't know what GPG verify as a command does. Why, why does that help them have additional confidence in the code that they are about to run if they run GPG verify? Yeah, GPG is, is a way how you uh, sign messages sign letters and everyone who obtains your public key can verify that it's actually signed by you. It's the call also, call also the web of trust if you in, in include key servers. So what it helps is if someone sends me a message, let's say Peter Rulio sends me a message, I can verify if that message is actually written by him and not by someone else by verifying with that P, uh, GPG or PGP key. And the, the same thing can 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 be done for, for a comment, for a a set of changes for Bitcoin Core. Every maintainer signs it with their key and everyone else who can obtain the public key on the internet can verify it has been done by Jonas or by Peter or whoever and not someone else or there's no slippery uh, comet slipped into in between that has rough consequences. Excellent. And I know there is other work being done in this area, people like Carl Dong and Geeks and this idea of reproducible builds. What does that mean? Yeah, there's depthness or there's limits to that Gitian approach, especially the compiler section. At, at, at the very beginning, you need to have at least a compiler. You need to trust, you need to download uh, within that process of Gitian. Compiler that turns source code into binaries. That's still kind of an element we need to trust within Gitian. And you can break that further down by having just a very, very minimal layer of trust, a very simple, very simple compiler that is even uh, um, on the machine level verifiable that then compiles and bootstraps the things you need to compile. So it's very complicated, but at the end, it gives a higher assurance that no one can, can change things we don't want. That's why the Geeks project is worked on. 
Right, yeah. So yeah, so for listeners, that's an interesting one. If you're interested to go down that rabbit hole, you can go search that and look up uh, this idea of the tool chain and what what tool chain are we using to verify things and create things or compile and build. I guess people might be thinking Bitcoin Core, sometimes the code can take a long time to change because things can be delayed. What? Why is? Why does that happen? Yeah, sometimes some people tell me, well, it's super slow how the process happens or how things go. Other people tell me, wow, what all what 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 happened in 2020 was awesome, <laughs> like a lot of changes. Yeah. So it depends also on on what you expect. Um, but of course, things can be really slow if you more known to kind of traditional software projects uh, because stability is 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 key it, everything is in in every change the center is stability and if stability is not given uh, we cannot add features and that's why it sometimes looks slow for most people yeah and as i understand it there's also this thing where if somebody puts in a pull request and then sometimes other things can change around them at the time that they were trying to make that change and then they will have to now do what's called rebasing the code what does that mean yes that's that's part of the negative side to work on open source you or on things that change slowly Assume I try to change uh, the peer-to-peer network like I done for en- encrypting the peer-to-peer network. First implementation I wrote three years ago. And it has not been merged because it's very complex. We need to change things. We need to specify things. Um, but I wrote the change three years ago. But in the meantime, there was a lot of other changes merged. So my change is no longer applicable uh, to the current code base because it changed. So what I need to do is whenever something changes the area my non-merge change is affecting, I need to do it again. I mean, not completely, but I at least need to change the uh, some things. Sometimes it's just a line of code that's shuffled in the wrong way. Sometimes it's completely different depending on what else have been implemented uh, in the area my change is affecting. And that's sometimes because, you know, things we, we mage daily. Sometimes it's like one week of work is just taking all your uh, contributions, rebase them. That's, that's called rebasing. Make them uh, applicable for the new code base. And sometimes you introduce bugs. Things are different. The concept is different. Uh, yeah, that can be really cumbersome sometimes, but it's part of the work. Yeah. And what about if people have just different visions for what Bitcoin should be? Uh, Maybe some people think of it as, okay, it should just be digital gold. It should be 21 million and no more. And then maybe someone else might have a different view where they think, no, I want privacy and I want confidential transactions. And they might be thinking, oh, I want confidential transactions, even if there is a risk, I think, depending on which way you go, either a risk of hidden inflation or a risk of the encryption breaking down. And then, you know, the amounts actually no longer being confidential how do you sort of weigh up that difference in clashing visions yeah especially you mentioned now a lot of consensus things and if there is a uh, an uncertainty in the consensus area my take on that is it, it's not it's not getting merged so taproot is a good example i mean it's not been forked into the chain but the code is at least now in uh, in bitcoin core and it's running on, on signet and stuff so i think um 
Taproot has an overall consensus agreement that it, it's beneficial for probably most. Well, we don't know. Maybe some uh, voices will come up uh, soon. But it looks like it, there's super great support for it. Where other things, because maybe also said, because there's no really, really hard uh, downsides to it, or we, we don't know them uh, yet. So I think that's also why it has broad support. But some changes have always a lot of positive and negative side effects. So I think that sometimes why uh, some changes have a harder time to get get merged especially like if you mention confidential transactions they they have scalability issues or scalability downsides at least so things like that i always think it will be very hard to to get the community behind because it's beneficial for some businesses or some interests but not beneficial for others that's where it where it makes makes it really hard and taproot as an example looks like it's beneficial for everyone a bit I see. So maybe we could summarize it as kind of if there's if there's gridlock, it's a no go. It's just not happening. But if you can essentially get basically everyone to agree to it, then there's a good chance you can get it in if yeah. you have enough review time and work on it. I think you can say that although segregated witness was also partially, uh, you know, um, controversial at the time, controversial, yeah. yeah, because of the block size, and you know, I think everyone wanted segregated witness or a lot of people, but they tried to tie it also to block size increase and things like that. Things like that will have a, probably even a harder time now when there's more eyes on 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 the things. So we'll see. Yeah, that's a tough one. And so I guess it's ultimately, if people really, really want something, they can fork off, right? That is always an option. And crucially, users don't have to run the code that developers give them. They can go find some other developers and run some other code, but it, it just essentially, you have to move the shelling point, basically. If you don't move the shelling point, if people don't go to your side, you're just creating a shitcoin, basically. Yeah, very important. I think in, in that sense, these people that have the intention to fork off for a change, they probably are hold back now because of the bad examples that have happened in the past. Uh, Bitcoin Cash is probably the most prominent example. It doesn't look like a successful fork uh, in terms of monetization. And I think because of these examples, people are in the future eventually trying more to, to, to pull on one, uh, to pull everyone on, on, in, into the same direction rather than forking off and at the end have a bad outcome. Yeah, so maybe we could summarize that as there's a very, very strong preference not to hard fork the Bitcoin economy, because if somebody puts out a change that breaks the consensus, now you've got a split in the chain and you cause all sorts of chaos in the exchanges, the wallets, the, the whole ecosystem, because people, they, they may not necessarily be on the chain that they want to be on. And there's all this kind of drama about it. And so uh, I guess we can summarize that then as saying we, we very much prefer soft forking for an upgrade. Absolutely. I think the last years show clearly that this is the much better way to go for everyone. Gotcha. And so I guess bringing it to, you know, what's happening with Taproot and potentially what comes in the future, is it the case that maybe we've got a case of uh, 2017 or Segwit2x PTSD and that everyone is kind of worried that it's going to go down like what happened in 2017, uh, but potentially the people who are really going to kick up a stink about this have already had their chance to say their piece and and, and that now, you know, fingers crossed, obviously, it looks like most uh, people in the Bitcoin ecosystem today are in favor of Taproot. I mean, it looks like the, you know, there's a, I think it's over 90% of the hash rate uh, effectively uh, the pools that represent over 90% of the hash rate to be a bit more 
precise, they have come out saying we support Taproot. Um, basically, every uh, well-known developer supports it. Uh, what's your view on where it is currently and uh, you know uh, the process going forward for that? Yeah, I think there's uh, many or some variables to that calculation. A, it's uh, it looks like, as I said before, Taproot has overall, it's more beneficial for all sides uh, or all stakeholders than segregated witness where, or, where people... Well, even there, it was probably beneficial for everyone, but people didn't see it back then. Um, that's that's one side of that very or one variable in that calculation. And 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 B, people learned. Good example is the miners. Miners initially thought they have they have their voting, which is not a voting uh, on on on, on soft forks. They th- they thought they have more power back then, and and trying to maximize their power or maximize their finance finance uh, opportunities by using that power but they they had to learn it's actually not power they have it's just you know it's, it was a mechanism to not uh, to, to not lose mining power in the network rather than avoiding so they they came back um, to the conclusion very likely that they have just to stick with the majority and make money by the, by the block reward and by the fees full stop rest they should probably hands away well if it's not beneficial to them they certainly will will come together and do something but things like taproot I, I would be wondering if they would be against and um, and of course we have some these failed uh, forks of uh, these failed hard forks, and this will also hold people off of doing it again. That's not a um, a white uh, or that that's that's not a, a, um, a free card for every soft fork. I think especially as if it's if it's controversial, it will have a hard time. But things that really move forward uh, and are beneficial for everyone, I I think it's it's right now. It's a good time to do it. So in terms of Taproot, uh, again, so there's, you know, Bitcoin has no CEO or leader, so it's not like an authoritative answer. But I guess from your perspective, what does it look like in terms of Taproot and the process for proceeding with Taproot in terms of, you know, when it's going into Bitcoin Core and that kind of aspect of it? Yeah, so I mean the specification or the discussion around Taproot are pretty old. Probably started mid with a mast from uh, Johnson Lau, Johnson Lau back in seventeen or even sixteen was it? So it, it, this is a long history of development. And at the end, someone wrote a pull request to implement it in Bitcoin Core. Uh, most uh, contributors were in favor of getting that into the main. Uh, code branch. There was a, were a lot of testing, and at some point, I think even after one one year, it got merged. So it's now merged, and it will be released in uh, in in version zero point. 21, which re- releases in the next weeks. But that's only the code. That's really no, really important to know. That's the code, the potential to taproot by these specifications. There is no soft fork uh, implemented right now. And um, usually how it is, someone writes an activi- activation for that soft fork, you know, proposes, well, we could do it like this. Uh, miners need to agree on this and that. It could also be a different mechanism, like uh, user-activated soft fork that's, that's still open uh, and probably it will be a traditional um, soft fork where miners um, kind of signal their readiness. And if someone implements that, it will go into the master branch uh, of the re- review and people will run it when, when there is a new version. And that's that's how things change. And it's not 
some top-down um, structure where someone says we're going to do that soft work. It's like you know, every everyone does its its part of it. You know, like you you mentioned before, the ninety percent readiness from the miners for tap. How do you measure that? <laughs> There's just one guy who set up a project. They collaborated with others to set up a projects a project. Ask miners uh, if they're ready for for tap root and willing to do it. Everyone does its part, and uh, that's that's truly open source in my opinion. Yeah, that's the crazy thing for somebody who's a little bit new to this space that they might be used to having a guy up the front with a bullhorn saying, okay, everybody, this is what's happening now. But there's, there is no guy up the front with a bullhorn. It's, it's actually just everyone has to self-organize in some way. So that means if you are an end user and you're running your Bitcoin node, you might want to upgrade to the newest version of Bitcoin Core. And we don't know yet exactly whether, you know, so you might just upgrade to version 0.21, but that won't necessarily have the, uh, uh, like activation aspect of it but you'll have the code for it and then uh, the miners have to get ready for it and everyone else has to basically make sure all their wallets and things are ready for it as well mm-hmm. um so i guess it's kind of like a everyone has to do their part yeah exactly and i think it's also really important to know that there is or it's impossible to have um a clear how you call that um milestone plan what we're going to do next on in bitcoin core because that that requires centralized planning if you want to have a centralized roadmap of things uh you need centralized planning and of course you could like try to do something in that area but usually everyone has its own agenda and its own milestones and own uh, own path uh, what he wants to do and that changes over time and having a centralized planning we do x in time y that would mean it's centralized planned and uh, we don't want that for sure yeah okay so turning to some other areas of Bitcoin, obviously, there's so so many different areas, uh, but uh, curious to get your thoughts on some of these areas around, uh, for example, Bitcoin privacy. Do you see any uh, things coming down the line that might assist people who are interested in using Bitcoin more privately? Yeah, I think the missing privacy in 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 the base layer is is still a big issue. I think I think still one of the biggest problems we have to solve and gladly stuff like taproot works in towards that direction of course it's it's not enough um there's other non-consensus changes that helps improve privacy like the wasabi coin shuffling approach which is great but i think can also be dangerous because the anonymity set is is probably still pretty low uh, what i like to work towards is full privacy for the whole um for all transactions in the base layer, in, in, in the consensus area. That's where, where things really get interesting uh, to me. And well, it will take a lot of time for sure. It's not something that will be solved in the next uh, two years, but I'm pretty convenient uh, it gets solved, uh, convinced it gets solved in the next 10 years or solved, uh, yeah. improved. So what sort of approaches do you think would make the most sense there for privacy over the next 10 years? Um, yeah, that's that's hard. I haven't haven't evaluated all the new proposals, but what I know is there's a lot of uh, research going on in that area with crypto, crypto cryptographers working on it. I think right now all the proposals that have concrete steps like wallet proofs, convention, uh, confidential transactions, um, they will go through another round of uh, specification overhaul improvement and i think right now we don't have uh, ready to implement technology or ready to state technology that would solve it in the way uh, how we would all like to so it's probably another year or two for 
specification overhauling. Yeah, right. So I guess it's like uh, confidential transactions, essentially, it doesn't have the right trade-offs that we want. And maybe in the coming years, there'll be another breakthrough in terms of how to do it with less bad trade-offs. And now maybe people would be more comfortable to have that. I guess the other big one that could potentially really move the needle there is, again, this is a future potential. It's not something anyone is kind of working on directly right now, as I as I understand, is this whole cross-input uh, signature aggregation idea, which mm-hmm. uh, maybe uh, th- that's an idea that might make coin joins, uh, like make the incentive for coin joining a little bit better. Um, so maybe that's, that's another angle. Absolutely. And also what we have seen over the last years is just how with, with pure scientific papers, how things got improved uh, m- much more over the last year so i think it's 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 in a great state now that uh, science science in in, this, in scientific papers we can get to a state uh, much quicker than trying to implement stuff uh, or trying to work on the, the detailed specifications of it of it rather than just coming up with new ideas sparing each other's with better ideas i think that's we're currently in that state in my opinion and from a lightning network perspective do you, you know, play around with Lightning yourself? Do you have any thoughts on uh, Lightning development or what you would like to see on that front? Yeah, so I, I'm still very interested in having uh, having a payment system rather than just a pure uh, store of, 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 of value, a store of wealth. I think Lightning is in go, goes into the in, the in into the right direction. It's still very early. In my opinion, it's 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 not major enough to be used uh, for the broad for the broad masses. On the other hand, we have still that high volatility. But I really like the argument that there is a capable payment system called Lightning that can be uh, pulled out as soon as uh, volatility go, goes down or uh, transactions on a daily basis gets more and more important. But right now, I think the the need for Doing daily transactions is not absolutely there, but it will be, in my opinion. Yeah. And as a Bitcoin core maintainer, do you see any, I guess, potential conflict if there are things that, say, Lightning developers want? And do they ever come into conflict with just people who just want to use Bitcoin on chain? Yeah, I think, you know, Taproot is also an example that has a lot of things Lightning people want. And, um, I think there's there were changes, uh, if I recall it correctly. Uh, check lock time verify is also a change that was uh, highly appreciated or wanted by the Lightning people that has been merged a few years ago. Um, I think uh, most Bitcoiners or say Bitcoin developers have are much interested into Lightning at, to succeed. So I think it's it's there's no clear um, or the people are sitting in the same boat I'd say right now and of course uh, no one would do a trade-off that that affects Bitcoin Core as a store of uh, value just in 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 the favor of doing 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 it as as a Lightning support I think right now all 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 changes that affect both in a positive way are are easy to do. Yeah, and uh, probably a good example is uh, any prevout, which uh, Christian Decker and AJ Towns are um, putting some work into that, and potentially that might be a future soft fork that helps us get to the next level of Lightning Network, which is the L two. That's E L T O O 
L2. So maybe that would be another uh, potential future soft fork. Do you have any thoughts on any prev out? Yeah, I mean, the, the thought I more have is that there is a lot of things um, kind of queuing for a soft fork. That is one particular example, but also another. And once we 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 set the time for a possible soft fork, I wonder how much other things should be pulled into that soft fork or should it be one after the other? Because soft forks usually take a lot of time and are hard to uh, to do if there is an attempt to pull things together into a single soft fork. And we'll see. Right, because uh, another one is, uh, I can't remember, I always forget the name, but it's Matt Corella's something like Great Consensus Cleanup Fork yes, or something like that. That one as well, yeah. yeah. So then, you know, there might be competing demands of people who want that and then people who want any prev out. And then uh, I know uh, Jeremy Rubin has the uh, CTV, check template verifies so that there might be kind of competing demands of what goes next uh, if things can't be done concurrently, that is. Yeah, and you, you don't want to overload softworks with features because it makes it harder to get to get in. And yeah, but you, you don't want to make a softwork every half year. Uh, well, well, we'll need to see what, what we can combine and what makes sense. Yeah. The other way is potentially if, well, I guess maybe this is a bit magical thinking or kumbaya, but what if, you know, uh, let's say Taproot goes down without a hitch. Everyone, you know, it's basically everyone is, for, is pro Taproot. You know, the miners are for it, the users are for it, the developers are for it. And then maybe the next few can be done in quick succession if so long as, you know, the ecosystem broadly considered uh, a super majority of the ecosystem is in it in is pro those particular soft forks. Yeah, I think that would be the ideal case, although we never should forget that there's always risks involved with every change, especially consensus changes. So we, sh we, sh we shouldn't take consensus changes lightly, even if we all agree that this is a beneficial thing. There should still be precautions uh, around it. And we're, we're dealing with, you know, a very high market value right now. So we don't want to, uh, broadly speaking, fuck it up, right? <laughs> yeah, I, I think the crazy thing is it's like uh, this, we're all in this airplane and it's taken off and we're in the air and we're trying to change it while we're in the air, you know? Yeah, <laughs> sometimes it feels like that, exactly. But on the other hand, you, you need to change things otherwise uh, the plane might lose altitude or even crash. So I think it's exactly that. We have to, but we don't want to, but we need to or something like that. Right. But the, the positive side is we're turning the plane into like a jet plane or a rocket ship. You know, it's like it's a, it's upgrading. Yeah, so. absolutely. And for, for sure, it will fly to moon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, also mining. I think that's another area we should chat about as well. So uh, I guess there hasn't been a huge amount of negative pressure on that area. But I mean, people mention it every now and again. They say, oh, look, 60% of miners are in China. Or um, there's talk about, oh, maybe the miners would start to have to sanction certain Bitcoin addresses or block certain addresses. You know, are there things that the you know Bitcoin mining ecosystem would need to make sure that Bitcoin sort of stays true to the permissionless uh, ideals of Bitcoin? Yeah, mining is one of these elements where where decentralization is still a bit at risk uh, or censorship resistant. Um, I think right now we're in a good state. There is no very, very uh, major or very, very high in terms of hash rate uh, pool around. Of course, a lot of uh, pools uh, come from, from China due to 
probably the cheap electricity and uh, the closeness to ASIC manufacturing. Uh, I think um, even if there is a pool that gains a high amount of hash power, it doesn't mean it will super problematic uh, short term. Um, but of course, it needs to be addressed. And I think right now we're in good state. Probably the more it, time goes down, the broader the hash rate will be distributed. Uh, I don't see a solution how to fix that centralization problem. And um I think, you know, right now with censorship, um, there's no miners doing, were a few in the past, but none is doing it in a broad scale, um, kind of uh, hiding certain types of transaction. And that's also why we want Taproot, because things will look more identical. Um, censoring stuff based on the semantics of a transaction will be harder. And um, I think we're on the right way. And miners have just one interest mainly. That's maximizing their profits uh, through the Barclay Award. Right. And so theoretically, a miner who was trying to censor transactions is effectively giving up income. And so that's one of the incentives that protects the overall system. I guess the uh, the 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 counter angle to that would be something like, oh, see, what if you know it's a government who pays for the mining because they want to try and kill Bitcoin, and so I mean, you can go down these kind of endless rabbit holes. Yeah, but I think it's 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 senseless because at the end, people would software it, uh, software around it. You know, it would change stuff to to bypass these preventions. And right now, it's a market. If if a miner starts to censor OP return data transactions. They just lose money and maybe to get it con- to get it confirmed faster, these services need to pay more fee and at the end someone will pick it up, even maybe the ones that were not mining these transactions because they, it's lucrative to do. That's why I think um, the market will solve it out right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and also I guess it, it also depends on the miner being able to identify that transaction as one that needs to be blocked uh, if the person has already used sufficient privacy techniques they may not be able to identify this is the one that needs to be blocked absolutely i mean right now uh, lightning transactions are still pretty much visible so a miner could could say i'm not mining lightning transactions because i fear that the fees go away from the main chain um, with taproot uh, things may look differently because it, it's possible to make it look the same and um these things are actually helping also in the decentralization uh, of of the mining problem. Yeah. And from a mining perspective, this is another angle of, oh, what if the fees don't get high enough in time? So I guess the one one interesting fact uh, for listeners, if you check out Clark Moody's dashboard, I think he says 99% of Bitcoins will have been mined by the year 2035. And so that means we've got about 15 years or so um, before basically the fees uh, have to rise or, or the price has to rise enough such that miners are getting enough of an incentive um, because potentially at that point, if the the percentage of the... So the block subsidy is comprised... So the block w- reward is comprised of fees and block subsidy. So if the block subsidy comes down, then essentially fees need to go up a bit. And if not, we might see this kind of lumpy block reward structure and that could also be difficult or troublesome uh if you know miners have to uh if there's like if that causes funny behavior in terms of like fee sniping and things like that i'm wondering what your view is on that do you just think overall the ecosystem is just going to grow so much that that doesn't matter or do you have a different thought on that 
Mm -hmm. it's hard to predict so it's we don't know what happens uh, during the next 10 years there's scenarios i think one thing that should not be forgotten is that the hash rate can also go down that's not a problem well it might get to a problem when uh when when there's a lot of volatility happening in on, on the hash rate market but of right now i think we have way too much hash rate to, to secure the current network we have so much kilowatts uh, per hour on 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 transaction that that it's way too much in terms of the security we need so maybe the hash rate will go down over the years who who knows and miners are eventually planning even with that that their gear will be obsolete in the next five years or something like that or even the newer gear they, they will purchase uh, it's it's hard to play out but um, i think it's always good to know the hash rate can drop we will need to deal with volatility with the difficulty but it's it's not required to have a hash rate stable or going up always. I see, yeah. And uh, I guess the other, because again, there's so many moving pieces here. Another one people could do is simply, not simply, but they could essentially require less, they could ha require more confirmations on the transactions they send. That's that's probably, That's also another adaptation that people could do. Yeah, possible. And I think also over time, we will have more transactions happening on the blockchain ideally with the same size but even maybe with a slight increase in size to have more uh, i mean taproot is a good example schnorr signature is a good example how to make get more into the same size of data on the blockchain so we can actually have uh, more fees with not more size and that will also uh, work towards um, getting more subsidized uh, or more fees for the miners mm -hmm. also just more broadly do you what are some big risk factors you see for bitcoin yeah um i haven't done a clear evaluation but my gut always tells me the highest risk is still boxing the implementation that's probably due to uh, on what side i work on um uh, i i still think there is when people sometimes tweet and you know bitcoin fixes that bitcoin always goes to moon number go up technology it's all good but sometimes I remind myself there's still risks involved, like in every system. I think in gold, it's probably, you know, finding gold somewhere else. Uh, in Bitcoin, um, people sometimes tell me, well, it's the hardest money. Yeah, maybe it's the hardest money. I, I agree. But there's still risks. You know, implementation could be wrong. Cryptography uh, could be overhauled or broken. Um, there there are risks on the implement implementation side, and I think these are usually underestimated. Yeah, I see. Not saying that it is a problem, but it's a risk, and we should address it always. Right. Um, and do you see a risk that if uh, people uh, leave their keys on custodians, or if people aren't running Bitcoin full nodes, or if they're not trying to uh, make the system more decentralized, is that a risk in your view, or do you see that as not as much of a risk? Uh, not so much as I saw it in the last years. So custodial services are getting better. Um, it's now, I mean, during the times of Mount Gox, I, I don't want to know, but it probably a lot of percentage of the wealth holders had had a stake in Mount Gox. Right now, it's more or less distributed. It's not only coin, uh, uh, not only uh, Gemini or whatever we want to, uh, whatever we want to name here. It's more broadly distributed, and I still think people should at least have a high amount of percentage of their coins uh, holding their pockets. 
And who knows what politically happened in the world uh, in this and the next years. So it could be that people who want to hold more in their own pockets. And uh, I think it's still the best you can do. But people should never forget if you hold your own coins, you need to be your own security guard. And that can be really, really hard. You need to make no mistakes. Do you see um, an importance in the proliferation of things like multi-signature and the accessibility of that kind of technology and software? Yeah, multi-sig is a good example. I'm still waiting. I mean, Spectre is probably the best example how to do it nowadays, but it's still a new software. It's it's not really truly tested by the ecosystem. Um, I think multi-sig is great, but the potential to screw up uh, it's 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 much higher than if you do a single sig transaction. So you need to be really careful. Stuff needs to be tested better than for single sig uh, transactions. I think it's a great solution. The protocol layer is perfect. Just the implementation, the usability of it, uh, uh, makes me believe it's not yet there. Yeah. And in terms of things like the, uh, let's call them the full node package softwares, you know, the Umbral, MyNode, Raspberry Blitz, uh, Ronin Dojo, and um, what's your thoughts on those? Yeah, I mean, I, I worked on a project on, on the Bitbox full node, Bitbox space. Uh, I tried to get that onto the market. It's just really a hard market. Um, I, I think running a full node in my opinion, you know, it costs you 100, 200, 300, maybe a thousand dollars, but you have your own view on the blockchain, your own trust layer that things are correct. And I don't know why the market is still not big enough that people want that, but somehow my gut tells me in the future people need or want to have their own trust layer to have their own view to the blockchain. Yeah, maybe it's a question of functionality and ease of use, and maybe uh, once it gets easy enough to have that, and uh, you know, run your own store off of that, or other things like that, uh, or maybe an easy way to run it, and then onboard your family onto that as well. So maybe the whole idea of the family node, or the perhaps the community node, uh, is a, is an idea that maybe that could uh, be developed over the next few years as well. Yeah, I tell that since 2015 or 14, and nothing has changed much. And I hope, I mean, it has a bit, but running a full node is still, you know, it's like, oh, you're running a full node, you must be that geek, right? But it, it should be like, <laughs> you plug it in, it's like a router at home, you plug it in and you have your access to the blockchain in a private uh, and in a trustless way. But it's not, we're not there yet. Last question, do you have any... Uh you know, predictions of uh, what happens in Bitcoin over the next, say, five years? Yeah, I think right now we see a growth in store of wealth, store of value. I think that will continue for probably a few years. Uh, but after these five years you just mentioned, I think there will be, uh, or even before, there will be a high demand for also using it as a decentralized system to transport money in a much broader way than we see today. Yeah, so uh, that means uh, probably a lot more Lightning Network use uh, in that at that time. So uh, we'll have to see. Stuff like that, yeah. Yeah. All right. Uh, well, I think that's probably going to do it for this one. So Jonas, uh, before we let you go, where can listeners uh, find you and follow you online? Sure. So uh, my Twitter is underscore Jonas Schnelli underscore, uh, or just search over the Jonas Schnelli. Uh, my GitHub is Jonas Schnelli. You'll find me there. You can follow me and see what I'm doing on Bitcoin Core. You're always free to contact me on Telegram. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, thanks very much for joining me today. 
Thanks. Thanks, Stefan, for having me. Thanks a lot. So I hope you enjoyed the show and make sure you share this particular episode with any of your family and friends who are trying to learn about how Bitcoin is developed. Obviously, we're all big fans of number go up and that's important too, but let's also make sure everyone is being skilled up and learning about how Bitcoin development works and how that ecosystem is operating. And so that way people know how to either contribute additional resources, either from uh, development time of their own or funding of money to uh, fund the ecosystem and help protect our investment. So make sure you pass this one on to any friends who are still trying to learn about Bitcoin and how it works. It can be challenging for people when they are new. So go and get the show notes at stefanlevera.com slash 242 and I will see you in the Citadels. Mm-hmm.